I am here with Jordan Carroll. Uh, Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for saying yes to this interview. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and get right to it. But first, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, uh, where you got your undergraduate degree and your graduate degree? Okay. Um, I'm Jordan Carroll. I'm a speech pathologist, school-based, based in Washington, D.C. I'm from California. I saw you're from Fontana, so we're going to have to talk about that later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I grew up in Menifee, California, and went to University of Redlands for undergrad. And for grad school, I went to Howard University. Very cool. All right. And so how did you first hear about the SLP pr profession? And uh, how old were you when you heard about this program? Um, I was really young. Both my parents are educators. My mom was a special ed teacher for like 30 years. So I saw the special ed teacher go into her classroom. Um, and I saw the kids like so excited to run up to like the little group table and she got to come and go as she pleased. And I was like, that's the life that I want. Um, my parents definitely like kind of pushed me towards it because they know me as a person, like I need autonomy, you know, like I need to be able to do things on my own. So it just worked out. Um, so I had to be like eight, maybe when I first knew what an SLP was. Okay, very cool. Uh, why is being uh, an SLP important to you? Um, and you said that you as a being, you need autonomy. Can you tell me a little bit more about autonomy and SLP? Yes. Um, so I think that being an SLP is important for a lot of different reasons. When I first started, it was just the fact that, well, first, I've always loved like language and words, like it's always been my thing. Um, but I thought that people like take the ability to communicate for granted. Like, I just thought it was always so amazing. Like we can think something and then like say it and people will know what we're thinking. Like, that's so wild to me. <laughs> you know, like as a kid, I remember thinking that. Um, so that was one thing. Um, and then I just like really understood how important it was to be able to communicate. Um, I think as I went further into the profession, um, I went through a lot of imposter syndrome because I was like the only black person ever. I never saw a black SLP until grad school. Um, but like at the same time, it made me realize like how important it is that I do become an SLP because like I know that obviously all these SLPs are not only treating white people, white children. And I know that I can relate to like people of my culture in a way that nobody else can. So that was really important to me. Um, autonomy, I think that for me as an individual, I just am like, <sighs> I don't like authority. <laughs> like I don't, I don't like having to answer to people. I like to be on my own schedule. I like to do what I want, basically. Um, I've just always been that way. And I think I get that a lot as an SLP. I work in a school, so it's a little bit more difficult as like it would be if I was like at a private practice or whatever. But I work for a contracting company that contracts into the schools. So I 
do still get a little more autonomy than I would if I was like a direct hire employee. So that's cool. I really enjoy it. Um, but like still, I can't, I couldn't be out of school for long, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So you had mentioned imposter syndrome through your journey of academia. Do you feel like higher education has given you more healing or more trauma? No healing. I don't think. Actually, no, let me take that back. I had a lot of healing in grad school because I went to an HBCU. I went to, which is a historically black college or university. Um, I went to Howard. And like I said, it was the first time I saw black SLPs. Um, it was the first time, like I saw people period in a position that looked like me, acted like me, listened to the same music, like we're into the same things. Um, and like, I could be myself. It was like, in grad school is when I stopped code switching. Like I didn't, I no longer code switch now because I, I know that I can be a professional and be myself. So that was healing. But other than that, definitely harmful. It was a very harmful experience. Um, undergrad was like, I would definitely say one of the top worst experiences of my life, just because like, it was the first time I experienced like overt racism and just like microaggressions daily, like all day, every day. Um, so that was harmful. And then like in, uh, in undergrad as well, I was told like I couldn't do this profession, profession. I should look into doing other things. Like I was just discouraged. So yeah, I would say it was harmful. Yeah. So um, you did identify a couple disparities in the program, but my next question is similar. Um, are you able to identify like maybe the top two, top three most harmful disparities that you saw in higher education in general? And after you name that, are you able to see a similar parallel in the BIPOC students that maybe you serve in the school setting? Yeah, I mean, I see huge differences. First, in undergrad, like I said, my school was 3% Black, which mm -hmm. was which is the same as the profession is now. Um, so it was just like, I was very alone. I never had, I had one professor of color and she was just like extremely dismissive. So that was really harmful too. And then um, like, so yeah, just not seeing, like not even anybody look like me, like any people of color, like that was huge. Um, and then I see just like the difference in, what is the word like funding accessibility like white people have everything like <laughs> it's so crazy even like in just like the difference between my undergrad which was like a small private school versus Howard which is like a literally historical university like the difference in just resources that we had like I had way more resources in undergrad at this small private school with I mean, it has history, but it's like white history, you know? So it's like, no, seeing that. And then on top of that, I definitely notice it now with my students because I work at two different schools and one is predominantly white and one is predominantly black and brown. And it's just the same thing. Like they just have so much opportunity at the predominantly white school. Like the parents have so much free time. They have like they get into these amazing preschools. They have all these after school activities. Like it's just a whole different lifestyle. And my kids at my predominantly black and brown school is like, they're all 
they all have a very different experience. Like there's kids that don't show up with jackets when it's 40 degrees in the morning. There's parents are struggling. Like every parent I've talked to has um, explained to me in some way or another how difficult, how difficult of a time they've been having throughout the whole pandemic. And the other school just does not seem phased at all. Like it's so interesting. <laughs> I definitely see differences. Um, so a lot of SLPs, especially uh, in my program, we are predominantly, um, it's predominantly white, <laughs> but it's also <laughs> Latino and indigenous. Okay. Um, however, the Latino and indigenous group, we came, we went out to the field as slippers first. And then we kind of heard about this profession. You were eight when you heard about this profession. I feel like this profession, you're either born into it or you hear about it in school, like in college, if you make it that far. So how do you think, uh, or what would you suggest to SLB, SLP programs across the board on how to be more inclusive? Do yeah. you have any ideas? Did you ever, have you ever thought about that? I think about it all the time. And what you just said is 100% correct. I literally do not know a person of color who became an SLP that didn't hear about it from family. Mm-hmm. No, that's really it. That didn't hear about it from family. <laughs> I don't know one. And that's wild. Like we, if we didn't have one family member to tell us or show us this profession, like we would not be here. Mm -hmm. Um, And everybody else, like, like you said, through school or like volunteering somewhere, like it's always another story. Um, So I think the first thing is money. Like, obviously Mm -hmm. it's money. Like if there was, if it didn't cost me, like I'm in over a hundred thousand dollars in debt from student loans and people of color graduate with the most student debt. If there was a way to combat that and not have these expensive. (laughs) This is totally (laughs) a safe space. (laughs) I just don't like, I don't understand why it's so expensive and it shouldn't be like, you're holding a lot of people back from joining this profession. Number one. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, we need to get out into like high schools, middle schools and like, tell people about us. People don't know who we are or what we do. That's why nobody knows. And that's why there's so few of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And three, I think um, our field is so stuck on like the traditional route, like you you going out into the field and becoming a slipper first, like that's not the norm, you know, like everybody else in your cohort just went through school, I'm assuming, because that's the way it usually is. And so I think it needs to be, there needs to be like more, it needs to be easier for non-traditional students. Like we shouldn't have to go, I shouldn't have to go to a clinic full time and have full course loads of classes so that I can't work and provide for myself or my family or my child or like anybody that I have to take care of. It's just like, they make it impossible. So if there's a way that we could do like more part-time programs or something like that, that would be cool. Um, not requiring the GRE. Yeah, a lot of things. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for that insight. So um, now I'm uh, moving a little bit more into your caseload your, and your students. So you as a clinician, uh, from your perspective of a clinician, what are some challenges that Black and Brown students face that your white students do not face? Um. 
I would definitely say my white students have much more student involvement. I mean, sorry, parent involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had at least 10 parents from my predominantly white school email me like before I even met the kid, before school started. And for my other school, I can get in touch with parents, but like getting them to meet or come to school for anything is like, it's difficult. They're like, I have to work. They have no choice but to work. They're not, they don't have the luxury of being able to work from home. Like most black and brown families throughout the pandemic, um, they are going into work and they have to provide for their family. And that's the only option. And I think a lot of teachers and like administration see that as them not caring when it's really just like, they have their priorities straight. Like they have to feed them, you know, like they have to house the kids. Um, And I see that a lot. Um, I would would say that's the biggest difference. Okay, yeah. And um, if applicable or from your experience, what are some, some mistakes that clinicians do when they are servicing students that look nothing like them, that do not come from the same place of origin uh, of birth, that have different cultures and different ethnicities. What are some common observations that you've seen or maybe you yourself have done where it's like, "Mm, maybe don't do that? Mm -hmm. Um, The first thing is I I think is most important is like self-reflection, being introspective, like understanding your biases, all of that. Like you should do that before you even meet the child. I feel like you need to check yourself. Um, And I think a lot of people don't do that. And which leads to the second point, they like base them on stereotypes. Like everything is based on a stereotype. I just saw a post from um, Ianessa Humbert about this person that said like, oh, Black families, Black people don't like to get like the PEC tube or something like that. Just like grouping all Black families into this one thing that clearly is going to impact their health in one way or another. Like you can't assume just because of somebody's race that this one thing isn't going to work or they don't want it. Um, And I see that happening a lot. Um, And also really important is like the, the, the materials that people choose. Like why... They're just not culturally responsive. I think um, when you are looking at materials and you don't see anybody in them that looks like the child you're serving, that should be a red flag. And I think people overlook that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You said that through your journey of higher education academia, uh, there was a lot of pain, a lot of trauma. Um, Do you see your students go through that pain and trauma? If you do, do you implement a space of healing in your sessions? It could be an activity. It could be affirmations. Uh, Do you do that? Yeah, I see my students definitely go through a lot of trauma, but I think their trauma looks very different than mine, especially I'm mostly speaking about the students that are people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Their trauma has to do with like their environment usually. Um, and not at school because they're surrounded by people that look like them for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, But we for sure do a lot of like healing spaces. We do like feelings check-ins before anything. Um, And then we always end the session in the mirror with affirmations. Um, But like, no matter what, I just, I make them 
know that this is a space where they can talk about what's going on. Like they don't, they can be themselves. They don't have to hide anything. Uh, every time they come and go, I say like, come see me if you need anything so that they know I'm here for them. Like that is so, certainly my priority, like a hundred percent. Yeah. What do you want your students to remember you by and for? I want them to remember me as somebody that cared about them. I really don't care about anything else. They could forget my name. They could forget what they saw me for. <laughs> like, I don't care. I just need them to know that I care about them, that they can come see me if they need something. Like, that's what matters to me most because a lot of my students don't have like stability or someone that checks in on them or someone that they know cares about them or loves them or won't switch up on them if they were acting out one day, you know, like that kind of thing. Okay. You said you have parents who are educators. Um, that obviously inevitably impacted you. Do you wish to impact this field the way your parents have impacted you? Or are you just going about your day trying to do the best that you can with the time that you have? Um, I think both. I think my, I mean, a motto that I live by is do what you can with what you have, where you are. And I think that I do that. And I also realize that by doing that, I can make an impact on the field. So like when I started social media, it was only because of my experience and knowing like I don't want any other like SLP or future SLP of color to go through this thinking like they're the only one or that nobody else is out there, that it's impossible, that they have to listen to the people telling them that they can't do it. Because I know that so many of us have had those very same experiences. Um, so I started it like I just I want people to see a black face like I'm just going to put myself out there. I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Like, didn't matter. And then um, like all these things started happening. George Floyd was murdered. And everybody was waiting for like organizations to speak up and Asha did not say anything <laughs> at all. Mm -hmm. And then like eight days later or something like that, they put out a statement that was trash, like didn't mention his name, didn't mention police brutality or anything that happened, didn't mention anything about like black Asha members, like nothing. So then I was like, all right, well now I know what I want to talk about because like this is trash, like somebody needs to say something. Um, and I think like through that, I found my voice and like really just was like, I need clearly what I have to say is important and my experience is important and I want to share my story and I want the things that are important to me. I need other people to know about because I need them to be important to them. Like mm -hmm. I need these things to matter around the field. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the impact I want to make. I, I like to challenge the status quo and change things for the better, um, especially for people of color. After discovering your voice, do you feel like you have had more nights of healing um, as you as a person, as well as a clinician? Do you feel like you are being heard? Um, yes and no. I feel like I go back and forth. I've had very healing nights. Like I have, I like days or when like people tell me like I've made an impact or how something has changed or they've learned something for me. Like those are days where I'm like, you know, this is like, I'm doing something. This is worth something. These people are not having my same experience. And that's literally why I'm here, you know? But then there's also days where like I get 
like negative feedback or I feel like I'm not being heard for like, or nothing is changing. And I'm like, why am I doing this? So I think it goes back and forth. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And I just wanted to say on this interview that again, I found you through social media. Um, I think you're breaking serious barriers. Uh, You have inspired me personally in my private, when I was working in a private practice and in a school to speak up. So your work is impactful. (laughs) Thank you so much for um, taking the time out of your very busy day for this interview. Thank you. Thank you.